from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Seamus. Welcome to Bike Talk, everybody. Before we get started, we got a special guest uh, out of New Orleans, out of the Big Easy. We got Hardy Elsie here, who is with us today, the founder, the CEO, the chairman of the board of the Bayou Cruisers and the Bayou Queens. You guys just did a big bike fest last weekend. Is that right, Hardy? Yes. This past weekend, uh, we did a bike fest. It started Last Tuesday with the local ride that we have uh, in the, here in the city. And then uh, we did another ride Wednesday with another club of ours that uh, that does a good job at uh, hosting. And then um, that was West Bank Night Riders had their ride. Uh, Bayou Queens uh, had their ride that Thursday night. And then Friday was a, was an epic party, man. We all brought, we brought everybody together for a party at the world-famous uh, Zulu Hall in New Orleans. Uh, we had over maybe about 300 people, three to 400 people at the party. Wow. Um, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was lovely. It was nice. Uh, then, of course, Saturday, um, we had the big bike show. A lot of, we had a lot of entries. We had a lot of heartbreaks, but we had a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of positive feedback. And so uh, these are these are custom bikes that people are showing what? Yeah, custom bikes. Uh, we have a category for regular uh, standard bikes, but we also have a category for custom bike, uh, custom bikes, a category for uh, e-bikes, trikes. Uh, we do best sound. Uh, <laughs> that's the most exciting part, the sound. Uh, right. We also do uh, best ladies custom, best male custom. So we have a variety of categories. And, right. uh, a lot of people participate. So it was a good showing it uh, yeah, on, on this past Saturday. And um, also after we do the show, we have a big ride throughout the city. So oh, that sounds great. Up, yeah. So we mess up the traffic for everybody. Around 6 o'clock, we ride through the city. So they'd be... They'd be blowing their horns at us, but uh, we, we 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 are safe when, and uh, we'll we'll buy by all the rules. So yeah. So so just just so our listeners know, this is the Big Easy Nola Bike Festival, and it's yes, at, it's it's on it's on Father's Day every year, right? No, every every year is the is that Saturday before Father's Day. Okay. Uh, we we started this back in sixteen uh, because. Really and truly, they had nothing for fathers to do, you know, because you go around town, they always have, for Mother's Day, they have people selling baskets on the side of the road, and they take getting ready to take them out to dinner and all that. But see, when Father's Day roll around, they don't have nothing for us to do. They don't, nobody's selling baskets. Uh, they got, they strictly have twos on sale, jumper cables on sale. We don't want that. We want love, too. So I decided to create it. <laughs> create this event for, you know, fathers, give us something to do other than, you know, something safe to do because you know how many is. We get out there and race a car. So, but this is a, a yeah. lot safer than car racing and they give us something to do as a hobby, as men. But it has grown and, and, and everybody has a piece, I have a stake in this event. So I love it the way it is right now. It's going in the right direction. 
it was getting more and more popular. Well, well, just so people know, where where can they find some uh, pictures and some information? Oh, uh, you can look us up on Facebook at uh, on Facebook in in the group and look up uh, Big Easy Nola Bicycle Festival. Uh, it's the it's the um, it's the logo with the gator on it. Uh, look us up on there. We also have an Instagram, Big Easy Nola uh, on Instagram, and also you can look up. The, uh, that's just the event pages, but you can look up the clubs individual, individually at uh, Bayou Cruisers on Instagram and Bayou Cruisers on um, Facebook, and also Bayou Queens on Instagram and Bayou Queens on Facebook. Great, so you man. Up, so you'll see a lot of pictures and, and stuff like that. So perfect. Check us out. Well, Hardy Elsie, thanks for uh, coming on Bike Talk, and thanks for keeping the big easy rolling, man. Oh, oh man, it's, it's 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 a hard job, but you know we do it all. We all put in work and and work collectively, and we and you know it works out. Thank you. It's great to hear from uh, Hardy Elsie down in New Orleans, and if you're ever down there, check out the Bayou Cruisers or the Bayou Queens. But we do have some really good news to share, you guys. Uh, AB 645 has uh, made it out of the assembly in California. Seamus, you are our senior political correspondent. Can you tell us what that's all about? Uh, for sure. AB 645 is the speed camera pilot bill. And my understanding is this is the furthest it's ever gotten. It's never passed its house of origin. So this is very exciting for Assemblymember Friedman. Right. We we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago on the show, and we were talking about how the ACLU didn't really support it, but a lot of advocates came out for it. And when they finally put it on the floor for a vote, it was 58 to 7. So it was it was a real win. That is a real win. Yeah. We've seen uh, important street safety legislation pass unanimously, only to be vetoed. So it is really important that people continue to call everybody who is going to have a chance to vote on this bill and really uh, send letters because there are people out there spreading real misinformation about it. In one of our interviews about this legislation, there was misinformation. No. Right. Not clear, correct information, right? Yeah. I think yeah. sometimes that happens when people are afraid of um, legislation. It's not that they're making it up, but they're they're voicing their fears without necessarily looking at the facts. Right. What we do know is that the status quo, car speeding on our streets is killing people. Definitely. Speaking of that, your next interview, Taylor, you and Lindsay, you have Charles Komanoff. Yeah, um, this is this was really interesting. I, I really enjoyed talking with, with him. He uh, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times last week about congestion pricing in New York City. And he really talked a lot about some of the um, transportation justice issues that would be affected by congestion pricing. New York would be the first city in North America to implement congestion pricing. He talks a little bit in the interview about uh, how a city like Los Angeles might do it and using that to extrapolate how other cities might do it to alleviate traffic. And he, he takes into his model all kinds of information, time wasted, sitting in traffic, pollution. Uh, it's really an interesting interview. And uh, here's Charles Komanoff.
Our next guest is difficult to introduce. He doesn't have just one title. He's a Harvard mathematician and economist. He's an energy policy analyst. He's a writer, of course. He co-refounded Transportation Alternatives, which makes him a bicycle advocate. He's the co-founder of the Carbon Tax Center, which makes him an energy policy analyst. He's a husband and a father. But most importantly, he's one of us. He's a person who rides his bike. Charles Kalmanoff, welcome to Bike Talk. Hey, Taylor. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Charles. Um, Thanks for being here. Lindsay, you you know Charles from way back. I just met him a couple of days ago when I read an article in the New York Times about the congestion pricing that he's putting forward. I wondered, Charles, if you could talk a little bit about your op-ed that was in the New York Times, congestion pricing, and how that fits in with BTA and what BTA is. Well, congestion pricing is the plan to um, charge motorists car drivers and truckers, um, to drive into that part of Manhattan that's south of 60th Street. So that's, you know, the Central Business District, Columbus Circle, Times Square, Empire State Building, downtown Wall Street, uh, et cetera, so that uh, the four East River bridges from Brooklyn and Queens would be tolled, T-O-L-L-E-D. Driving across 60th Street would be tolled. Coming in from New Jersey, via the Holland and Lincoln tunnels would probably only be told a small additional amount because they already pay tolls to the Port Authority. It's a plan that was approved by the state legislature over four years ago. And for a whole bunch of reasons, it still is not in place. And my op-ed, which I co-authored with a young, um, ardent and brilliant climate economist from Columbia named Gernot Wagner, was our effort to help reboot congestion pricing. But it was also timed to the fact that a little over a month ago, the Federal Highway Administration finally stopped uh, micromanaging and prevaricating and approved a or issued a notice of no significant impact, no significant negative impact from congestion pricing. And that, that whole thing seems a little bit absurd because if you make it more expensive to drive uh, cars and trucks, you're obviously going to reduce the amount of cars and trucks, which is going to be good for the environment and people and cities and all that. So the idea that that had to pass some microscope of um, no environmental impact is absurd on its face. But anyway, it did. And in some ways, the um, presumption for whether congestion pricing is actually ever going to be implemented in New York City has kind of gone from, well, maybe not, to almost certainly Yes. And a process is underway that's going to take another year or so. But hopefully by this time next year, uh, just about any car or truck driven into the central and lower part of Manhattan is going to be charged uh, to do so. And that will have two excellent benefits. One is less traffic and less of all the externalities that driving introduces, the most prominent of which is the lost time experienced by people in cars and trucks and on buses and on foot and on bicycles. And the other, though, is that most of those car trips are going to continue to be made, which is kind of a good thing because it means money from the tolls flowing into the coffers of the transit agency here, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, or MTA, which will then bond those revenues to be able to um, invest an additional $15 billion 
over a period of time into making the subways run better. Right. Can you tell me how it would work? Well, you know, through Easy Pass, which is the East Coast um, digitally recorded transponder mediated way of paying tolls here. And about 95% of all car and truck trips on highways, bridges, and tunnels, not just in New York, but in the whole sort of Northeast, are now paid with Easy Pass. Right. There's only 5% that are paid, and not even by cash anymore. Toll booths pretty much don't even exist. They're told by mail right uh, and so uh, it's a pretty uh, simple you know the technology is not a problem uh, you know 50 years ago when congestion pricing was first seriously floated for new york city it kind of wasn't all that feasible and in fact right. it would have had to require toll booths and cars and trucks would have been backed up on the highways leading into the city which right. would have spewed pollutants, you know, kind of on those portals. And so that was a kind of fundamental contradiction. <laughs> well, oh, yeah, you're going to like make the air better by reducing car traffic, but you're going to back it up, uh, right. you know, but we don't have the problem anymore. anymore. Right. And this is being implemented in other cities, correct? Well, so yes and no, Taylor. Um, it's It has been implemented in half a dozen cities in Europe and Asia. London, Stockholm, and Singapore are the prime exemplars. There's a similar plan in Milan, a few cities mm. in Norway, but no cities in North America. And, you know, it's not as if this is a gangbuster idea spreading like wildfire uh, across right. the globe or being an anti-wildfire because there's going to be a climate benefit here. So, you know, let's not overstate how popular this is. Uh, I'm going to say that Europe, in a funny way, doesn't really need congestion pricing all that badly because they have now 50 years on since the Arab oil embargo and the OPEC price shock exactly half a century ago, they have a raft of policies to dissuade right. and discourage driving high gasoline taxes, parking being really difficult and expensive, which is great. Right. Um, and a, a social tradition of um, investing in and maintaining and valorizing public transportation. It's right. where, but here in the United States, we don't have those things. And congestion pricing is going to be a, a big policy to, to kind of blow open the door to make our um, urban transportation more efficient, more humane, and less polluting. Right. I was just going to ask you what, what the messaging is that, that seems to be working and what the obstacles are. But it seems like that's the messaging right there, that it's going to make life more pleasant for the people who live and, and work in the city? Well, it depends on who's doing the messaging. You know, uh, unfortunately, the, the lead agency here for congestion pricing um, that was designated in the 2019 enabling legislation, mm -hmm. that is the MTA. Um, and they, they can't message their way out of anything. I mean, if, you know, if um, Aaron Judge, the great Yankee slugger, you know, right. wins the World Series this fall with a walk-off grand slam, um, you know, in the seventh game of the World Series, they're probably going to, you know, say, um, oh, you know, excitement at the stadium. Some guy, you know, hit a home run that seems to have made a difference. Right. Um, we're, we're really stuck in a bureaucratic, um, you know, I don't know. I, I, it, it's just, it's so bedeviling. And part of the problem is that the MTA's giant environmental assessment that was issued last summer bungled 
the job. They didn't really know how to model the decrease in driving that will result from making it much more expensive, not a little more, but a lot more expensive to drive a private car into Manhattan. And the result is that they they are forced, the MTA, they back themselves into a corner of selling congestion pricing mostly as a way to raise money to make transit work better. Right. And that's only half. Right. Um, and in some ways, it's not a very good half because hardly anybody here trusts the MTA to be efficient in investing those revenues. Uh, I mean, we it, we really have, um, you know, a, an, an ally or, a, you know, a, a leader that it, it has tied its hands behind its back and in some ways has forced um, everybody else's hands. And in some ways, to get back to the op-ed, the two new things in the op-ed in the Times last week um, were one that um, I was able, and my co-author, to cite my modeling and to put out uh, very explicitly the billions of dollars in saved time right. for drivers and later transit riders once the revenues get invested productively, if they do, you know, that we're going to be able to realize. And, but the other is that we were able to point um, a, a finger at the MTA and say they bungled the job. And here's what congestion pricing is really going to do. It's not going to be a small gain per the MTA. It's going to be a fabulous thing for New York City because less traffic, less time wasted, safer streets, quieter streets, easier to bike, easier to walk, easier to ride the bus, easier to do everything. And in some ways, even better for drivers because they will have less, fewer of each other. You don't have to take that many car trips off the road in a hyper-congested place like New York City to make a big improvement for traffic flow. So we were able to make all those points, uh, and it's great that we did. I'm so curious about the MTA board and why I read... I read your um what you linked to your article that you linked to about how they they bungled the um the math and first of all how incredible that you were able to go in there because they wouldn't share the data and I'm curious both why they wouldn't share their methodology and why is the MTA you know what about them is resisting all this really positive stuff well, you know, fortunately, um, I mean, you mentioned I'm a, I'm a Harvard mathematician. Um, and one of the few things I really did learn at Harvard, because I was mostly in the anti-war movement, you know, it was in the 60s, w- was um, from John Kenneth Galbraith, um, who, whom I took a course, and Paul Goodman, um, whom I read, that, you know, bureaucracies um, end up basically serving themselves and trying to further their own viability. Um and existence. And they um, just, it seems to be a, a rule of bureaucracy to resist outside pressure, uh, outside or even outside constructive pressure. And it's just, it's really too bad that when they were finalizing their environmental assessment, the MTA, uh, a year ago, that they didn't look at the results and say, oh, my goodness, our modeling is saying that very few car trips are going to disappear. And the only reason that Manhattan traffic will get better, according to the MTA's modeling, is that a lot of trips that now go east-west through Manhattan to get from Jersey to Queens and Long Island or in the other direction, the toll will make them go around Manhattan into environmental justice communities in like Harlem and the South Bronx, 
who will suffer so that Manhattan residents can enjoy less traffic. Now, that is baloney. If they could have looked at their own numbers and said, something isn't adding up here, let's call Charlie Komanov because he's got this model that was used by the New York state government five years ago in the run-up to formulating the legislation that led to the congestion pricing law. And his model was really good. It was battle tested. We relied on it. And later we even calibrated it to our own MTA model. And we were just like thunderstruck at how close the agreement was. So why don't we talk to Charlie and see like, gee, did we do something wrong? And uh, God, I would have, I'd give my eye teeth to have been able to tell them, well, yeah, you understated the price elasticity and you overstated the current cost to drive into Manhattan by throwing in the time costs along with the gasoline costs and the parking costs, which diluted the mathematical impact of even the small or too small price elasticity that you assume. So just fix this thing and fix that thing and rerun your model and you'll be able to derive that you know huge reductions substantial reductions in the volume of cars going into Manhattan, not because of diversion, but simply because of trip elimination, because the toll will induce some car trips to switch to transit or to more carpooling or bus or bike or whatever. And then they would have just never run into this buzzsaw of environmental justice concern totally right. justified because, you know, gee, why wouldn't you rely on the MTA model, uh, which is saying that more cars and trucks are going to go through our neighborhood? Right. When you talk about environmental justice, also, how, how do you counteract the argument of, well, you're really just charging poor people and making it so that lower income drivers won't be able to drive into the city at all then? Yeah, well, because the, the answer to that, fortunately, is, is really straightforward. Very few of the cars that currently drive into that kind of crowded uh, and expensive to park part of Manhattan are driven are by low income drivers. And we were able, the one organization that we cited specifically in our op-ed is the Community Service Society, probably the oldest anti-poverty organization in the country. They're over a century and a half old, which mm-hmm. has been a full-throated supporter of congestion pricing because not only do very few working poor people drive into that part of Manhattan, um, but also the investment of the congestion revenues into mass transit will benefit a huge number of working people. So they, if they were not, the Community Service Society, a rock bottom part of our congestion pricing coalition, we would be in trouble and we would even have to re-examine like, gee, are we doing the right thing? Um, right. It is great that they are uh, with us. Right. One more question along this whole thing of environmental justice. That's one of the arguments that people have a lot in a in a city like Los Angeles when we want to put in a bike lane or some bike infrastructure on one road. People are always afraid that well all you're going to do is drive traffic through the neighborhood around that one road. So rather than a macro example like Manhattan, can you answer that in a micro example, like on a bike lane in West Hollywood or a bike lane in Yonkers or something like that? Well, I would almost switch your micro and macro because congestion pricing is not really tailored to a kind of oozing large domain like L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, what is going to be needed for a place like Los Angeles and most kind of urban or conurbations in the United States 
is, is going to be an area-wide pricing that instead of charging money to go into a specific kind of central core, because you don't really, I know there's downtown LA and, you know, it's hopping and bopping and congestion prices right. would be better than nothing. But what you really need to do in LA is kind of charge on a larger area basis and have those charges be greater in times and places where there's more congestion. But to your point about economic justice, those revenues will need to be either invested in public transportation if it can be shown that that is going to benefit and in a way that offsets the costs of most poor and working people, or it, those revenues should be simply distributed in you know, electronic checks to everybody living in Los Angeles, kind of like the fee and dividend model for carbon pricing. Um, right. Because in Los Angeles, anything that we do with road pricing, uh, or let me just back up for a second. In, in New York City, congestion pricing intentionally targets only a small number of car trips, the ones right. that go into the center, that cause the most congestion, and that are being um, made, those trips, by people who are affluent enough right. to be able, and whose trips bring them enough perceived economic value, that most of those trips will continue to be made, which is good, because that will then help fund MTA improvements. Right. In a place like Los Angeles, there's no sort of targeting like that. And we need to have a lower toll level on a larger number of trips. And again, whether that gets invested in public transit or dividend checks or you know, 50-50 is a fascinating public policy question for you guys to figure out. Right. Well, I've, I've never heard of dividend checks. That's amazing. Almost like living in Alaska because there's so much oil yeah. there, people get a dividend check there. You got it. I wow. love it so much because it, it really points this concept that it's the, the, the roads belong to all of us. It's a shared amenity and that we have to share it. And we're sharing it with our time right now, which I loved in your articles. It's that the, the, the time that you're spending is actually rippling. So, you know, we think, oh, I'm wasting 15 minutes in traffic. Well, you're also wasting everybody else's time. So this idea that like, how do you share the road and that it's revenue neutral, although I do love that the money will go to increasing, you know, giving that mode share possibility. You guys um, targeted a 15 to 20% cut in traffic. How did you come to that number? And what about pricing it dynamically? The 15 to 20%, it was sort of more, that's what London and Stockholm and Singapore targeted and have pretty much achieved. And that's kind of a sweet spot because, you know, that percent attrition or elimination of car trips redounds as a really big uh, time saving. It's sort of more than linear or more than proportional. But the fact that 80 to 85 percent of the trips continue, uh, that's what puts cash into the MTA coffers so that they can bond $15 billion in capital improvements. So that's kind of a sweet spot if you will. And um, that's probably, um, you know, what you would want if Los Angeles did it as well. But in terms of, you know, dynamic pricing, sure, whatever toll level is implemented in New York City, you better believe it's going to be less overnight and probably somewhat less on the shoulder periods, like middle and late evening, or, you know, five or six in the morning, maybe even a little bit in the middle of the day, uh, you know, on weekends, but the peak toll will be applied at peak traffic times. And all that can be adjusted to 
kind of be the most efficient in terms of saving motorists the most time while tolling them relatively less. So the MTA basically had has the power to constantly adjust the price to almost dynamically price it. So, and I should explain dynamic pricing. It's a congestion pricing that floats. It's like Uber surge pricing. The price goes up when there's more demand and then it floats right back down when the demand dissipates so that you really can have a city with no traffic. If people yeah, well, or, or with you can have a city in which traffic congestion is not a constant, just you know, chronic call on people's time and sanity, mental health, physical health, etc. One of the great things about riding a bike is I know to get from my house to the valley on my bike takes 40 minutes, whether it's the middle of the day or the morning or late at night. And in a car, those times are drastically different. It, it, um, isn't that true? And actually, what you just described, the that is something that drivers will be able to bank on better with right. congestion pricing, which I've never quantified. I don't do standard deviations, Taylor. I just do <laughs> sort of, you know, means or average. Right. That's like another level of refinement. But, you know, since you brought up my BTA model that's uh the balanced transportation analyzer the name was chosen by my late patron who paid for me to develop uh this model you know and his family foundation has kind of continued that over the past 15 years a great and humane and um left liberal labor lawyer in new york city a kind of legendary man named named theodore keel and the this uh spreadsheet model of mine and by the way it's on it it's on the internet it's public domain any of you out there if you if you're like spreadsheet geeks and you <laughs> want to download an 18 meg spreadsheet and where you can plug in your own parameters you know charge this much of a toll and exempt those people and fiddle with the subway fares you know this way you know blah 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 just um google um bta 1.1 or balanced transportation analyzer 1.1 and um the, the currently and I, i'm re, you know updating it and refining it all the time it's got 140,000 equations in it wow which coincidentally is probably about as many miles 140,000 that i've bicycled in my yeah life. ridden on your bike right <laughs> right lindsay you were just going to ask that congestion pricing opens the door to bike lanes yeah since since we're bike talk one of the things that's so exciting about congestion pricing and dynamic pricing is that as you eliminate, if you have the power to eliminate traffic, you can take lanes away because you're just going to reprice it. And one of the big arguments against safe bike lanes is that it takes lanes away. So, you know, are you excited about congestion pricing, sort of opening the door for dedicated bus lanes and dedicated bike lanes? Wait, did you say dooring perhaps? No, just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. I've been dooring. Before you open the door. You know, um, we have to be a little careful, though, Lindsay, because, you know, again, in my model, I um, the way the model is set up now, it, it assumes that all of the road space that is freed up because there are fewer cars being driven on it, that they stay that way. And as soon as we start taking lanes away to do other terrific things that I very much want to do, like bike lanes, that sort of runs the risk of uh, shrinking a little bit the travel speed gains that we are promising to drivers, unless we can show 
And it may be the case that by um, making bike lanes on arterial roads or local roads, even though that might uh, at first slow down drivers, well, the switching of car trips to bicycles will in turn reduce the traffic flow. So maybe we will get back that benefit that at the outset we've taken away. And by the way, that's another thing that's not in my model. Any of you out there, you know, listening, you know, any of you to to, to bike talk who want to like work and help develop this model, like, you know, absolutely go for it. That's all, great. All mathematicians. One of the things that we've been talking about on Bike Talk is the difference between incremental approach to some of these changes and then sort of an all or nothing or, you know, you know, just do it now sort of approach. And you have a, you have an article that says incrementalism has failed. And we were talking about that just last week on the show. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what is the approach we should take? Is it a just do it all or nothing or how do we move forward? Um, wow, that's such an important question. So Taylor, I believe that that piece was something I wrote uh, in the start of the pandemic, like maybe in June 2020 or something like that. Mm -hmm. It was a you know a, a tirade, and I think justified against the New York City uh, Mayor De Blasio administration, um, who was just kind of doing nothing. I mean, just standing still. And that was a time when they really should have and could have rammed in bike lanes and bus lanes and wider sidewalks, uh, you know, all kinds of things. But it, it's funny hearing that I did write that because when I took over transportation alternatives in the 80s, and that happened only because the organization was sort of crumbling. Uh, and like as the last ditch, they gave it to me, you know, like a math geek and an energy policy guy who, you know, didn't know the first thing about organizing at right. that time. My watchword, my mantra was incrementalism and go after the low-hanging fruit. And I guess what, what I'm saying here is that for you bike advocates and bike organizers out there, get any and every win that you can. Go for the low-hanging fruit because almost by definition, that's all that you're going to be able to get. And by getting this win and that win, you know, whether it's sort of bikes on buses or wider bike lanes or more bike lanes or um, uh, more um, sort of governmental prosecution or adjudication of motorists who injure and kill bike riders and pedestrians. Any win that you get is A, going to be good in itself, and B, it'll redound as greater political and organizing power to you, so you'll have more ability to get the next win and the next and the next. And we pursued that strategy in the mid-80s into the early 90s, the period in which I was leading TransAlt, and it was marvelously successful, and we were able to hand off uh, not just a, a slightly more bikeable city to our successors, but uh, a much more vibrant organization that was able to build and build and build. So, you know, bike advocacy should, I think, embrace incrementalism. But government, you know, if there anybody in government who wants to make a difference, like just go for the whole darn thing. This is your moment. And don't just do one baby step after another. Right, right. What's so exciting about congestion pricing is it just opens the door to so many other solutions. One of them, I'm curious about if you see a connection between congestion pricing and pricing externalities and carbon taxes. What do you think? Um, uh, I, 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 you know, I totally do. And, you know, from the early 70s, which is when I started really working on 
environmental and energy policy and simultaneously learned how to ride a bike uh, at age 25. Uh, and that just flipped on every switch in my brain and my life. You know, I've been um, obsessed with the idea of internalizing environmental and societal costs into the prices that we pay for commodities and activities. Um, on, you know, A, it's a, it's a policy that works well with any other policy. Um, it doesn't interfere with regulation or standards or even subsidies. It kind of enhances them. I, I think of you know, internalizing environmental costs through carbon pricing or uh, noise pricing, you know, helicopters, jet skis, you know, price their noise, and then traffic congestion and the, all the societal damage from automobiles. I think of it as like a 20 mile an hour tailwind for a bicyclist. It just makes everything else that you're doing so much easier. And it generates revenue with which we can do good things or, uh, I hate to put it this way, but buy off those who feel they will be damaged by you know distributing revenues in that strategic way, whether it's dividend or something else. So I, I'm all for that. And I do hope that when, in 2024, when congestion pricing finally starts up, in New York City, and it um, meets or surpasses all the expectations and dispels all the doubts that this will help open the door, as you said, Lindsay, to more serious consideration of carbon taxing in New York State and around the entire country. Freeways, highways, of course, you call them in New York. We call them freeways. Any dreams of taking down some of those highways that Robert Moses put through New York? Um, gee, that's that hasn't been my department, you know. Well, you know, there is one. I mean, the Sheridan Expressway in the Bronx that's is kind of redundant, and I think there have been studies. Um, I don't, I haven't really followed it. One of the things that got talked about during the whole kerfuffle um, about whether uh, air quality would get worsened in the South Bronx by congestion pricing was to revive or give um, visibility to what had up until that point been a kind of you know lonely idea of decking the Cross Bronx Expressway, the super urban expressway highway that Robert Moses literally rammed through the diverse and vernacular and cohesive multiracial, multi-ethnic community in the South Bronx uh, in the 50s, which is, you know, of all the Robert Moses sins, that is the er sin. And at least by decking it, uh, a park, you know, parks could be created. And by the way, that's something that really couldn't have been done 50 years ago because the air emissions would have been intolerable. But cars are that much cleaner in terms of the toxins from the tailpipes that it's kind of feasible now. And um, the the door has been opened not to doing it, but at least to seriously considering it. So if maybe there will have been a silver lining to the MTA's bundling its environmental assessment and overhyping the possible negative impacts on the South Bronx, if it leads to some serious consideration of trying to redeem through decking um, the sin of the Cross Bronx Expressway. You know, since we're talking about Robert Moses, um, have you read The Power Broker? And and what's your assessment of what Moses did to the city and, and to transportation worldwide? Oh, um, yeah. Are we going to do another whole interview, Taylor? 
Uh, <laughs> actually, I'm I'm probably one of those rare people who read the Power Broker in the original New Yorker magazine for successive issues, you know, version, which in total was probably only about, you know, 15% of the entire book. Right. Uh, but that was really eye-opening to me. And it was, you know, fascinating and fabulous. I grew up on Long Island, actually, and much of the early part of the Power Broker concerns how he was able to build parkways, as they were called, through Nassau County that totally paved the way, literally as well as figuratively, to suburban development. And that, you know, combined with redlining and racism in a home building and lending, you know, FHWA racist policies really helped create the lily white suburb, you know, in, in America. But um, and then that model sort of got duplicated across the entire United States. It's a tragedy writ large, and it's just uh, taking us longer, to, if we even succeed, to dig ourselves out from that than it did for Moses and his bulldozers to literally dig us into that hole. Right. Thank you. There's something that I've, I'm always curious about, and, and I want to hear how someone at your level speaks about it. So thank you for that. Lindsay, any last questions that you have? Thank you for your work. It's been inspiring me for 20 years, and I feel like this is this moment of change. So, and I know you're the, you're you're the reason it's happening. Oh, oh, yeah. right. Uh, the only reason, you know, I mean, there are thousands like me uh, organizing, and you know, one of the great things about living in New York City, well, there there are a number, and one is that you don't need a car; you can organize your life uh, around a bicycle, as I do, uh, as my wife does as so many of us do, but even more that there is a very uh, cohesive and vibrant and diverse community of activists that are working, you know, in oh, so many different spheres. And it's, but by the way, we are taking a page from you guys in California in the more housing movement. We are learning from Scott Weiner and the Yimbies in California. And that energy is finally here. And that's going to, that is going to grow and grow. That's fabulous. That may even be like my next frontier. But we have an amazing transit and safe streets and livable streets community here. And all the modeling um, and ranting and quantifying that I do would be sound and fury signifying nothing if not for that community of activists. I'm glad you mentioned Scott Wiener. He's an important figure out here. And Lindsay has been working on LCI, which is a livable community initiative, which is about supporting mixed income housing in the urban core and allowing people to not have parking when they rent or buy an apartment, which makes it affordable. Yeah, right. Terrific. We're all in this. Um, we're, we're pulling together. Charles Komanoff, thank you so much for being on Bike Talk, for taking the time to talk to us today. And thanks for your work. Thank you. I'm looking forward to that T-shirt. <laughs> That was an epic interview, Taylor, you and Lindsay with Charles Komanoff. He has had such a career, long career. Hey, here's more bike talk coming up. We have an interview with a high school bike tour group um, that I caught up with at Northampton High School in Northampton, where we broadcast out of at Valley Free Radio in Florence, which is the next town over. Yeah, I, I loved this interview, Nick. Um, you know, these these kids are 15 years old, 16 years old, and it's uh, it's their first time doing a, a bike trip, and they just have such beautiful voices about the experience and, and how they realized that they could do it. Yeah, I gave them some questions to start with, and then they took over the interview themselves. But first, we hear from 
their coach, Brant Jones. We're with Brant Jones, math teacher at Northampton High School. And and what do you call it? The tour? We call it uh, Born to be Wild, which was just something that the, the front office secretary here, Miss Reeves, coined. And it's stuck. And so this was BTBW number two. Number two. So it's the second annual. Yes. And I'm hoping we've had great success with year one and year two. And I'm hoping uh, that this sticks around and we can make it an annual event. Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty special thing. It's super special. Bike touring has been a hobby and a passion of mine. And coming back to school from COVID, I just wondered if I could lift something like this off the ground. It's been a, like a, a dream to do this with students. And I had a couple of students who had mentioned they were into biking last year. And so we kind of brainstormed and kept talking and eventually put a tour together and then this year it was nice because all the pieces, like the, the shell was there to kind of facilitate it and build it. And we just completed year number two. And your school secretary, Jane Reeves, showed up. Yes, she did. We had three nights, four days, three nights on the road. And those three nights we were camping at three different locations. And so night number two, we were up at Benadnock State Park in New Hampshire. And she surprised the students by showing up um, and brought a couple of pizzas and some other good food. And we had a great time around the campfire. Well, it sounds amazing. And you kind of need a special kind of students to, I would think, to handle all that. Special in that they're willing to, you know, muscle their way through some, some hard days and some, you know, some challenges along the way. But it, the trip is definitely open to everybody. Well, thanks for doing it. It seems like a great experience in their lives. It's been nothing but uh, a pleasure for me and I'm psyched to think about next year. So I'm Alex and I am currently a junior here at NHS. I'm Elias, I'm also a junior at NHS. My name is Tess, I'm a, uh, I'm a freshman here at NHS. My name is Ari, I'm a junior at NHS. All right, so maybe we should start by defining the ride talking about what kind of riding, the distance, the number of days, and the time of year? Sure, I can uh, start with this question. Um, so the ride uh, happened uh, June, um, I think it was 8th to 11th. And um, we, we took a 150 mile route, starting from Northampton, going up to Lake Tully, and then Mount Monadnock in New Hampshire, over to Brattleboro in Vermont, and then back home. And it was all along roads uh, with a couple gravel bike paths mixed in. Overall, with uh, weather conditions, it was pretty solid this year. We only had one day where it really rained. Um, it also was nice because it was on the cooler side. So it didn't really affect like temperature, like heat wasn't a big thing. And the nights actually weren't that much colder than the days. So we weren't dealing with a lot of extreme temperatures. Yeah. And so how it would work is we would start off, we would bike and stop at a lunch spot. So we would all grouped together at some restaurant that we chose. And then we would finish off our ride back to the campsite. Everyone would just hang out there for a bit. And then we would all eat dinner, camp overnight, usually have a campfire and eat breakfast there in the morning and head out. And along the ride, there was a fair amount of like splitting up and people going at different paces, but we took a lot of breaks. So we were able to regroup and everyone bike together sometimes. 
Yeah, so the really cool thing about the ride is it's actually very cheap, especially when you compare it to other uh, student experiences. So because we're um, bringing a lot of our own food, we're bringing all our own tents and sleeping bags and all that, and we're just camping at uh, state uh, campsites, um, it actually came, uh, I think it came out to only $60 a person. So it was really cheap and that meant we didn't have to do any uh, complicated fundraising. It was also important that we uh, plan this trip in advance because because we're going out of state, the school needed a few months of advance notice. So that was another thing to take into account. We borrowed a lot of gear and that also kept the cost down. I know I borrowed things like bike lights and panniers, which are the bags that go on your bike. And I think the PTO granted a little bit of money to us to spend on supplies and gears, but there was also a fair amount of borrowing and lending. So I think that really helped keep the cost down. And that was a really good part of the trip. Um, it was important to be very like, uh, not critical, but just like very specific when we were packing because the more you pack, obviously the heavier your bike is making it more challenging. So I remember having to lay out all my clothes and eliminating things that I wouldn't necessarily need. Um, and I even, even some of the stuff I didn't wear. So for next time I go on the ride, I definitely have to be even more uh, critical of what I bring. Yeah, you actually really don't need a bunch of equipment for a bike trip. You really just need a bike rack, some panniers, and then your essentials. So that would be a sleeping bag, and then you'd share a tent with someone else. Um, so a lot of people would think that you'd need your own camp stove, you'd need all this cleaning stuff, you'd need like 10 different kits. But for bike packing, just like Alex said, because you have to carry all your stuff on your bike, you really want to pack light. We also made uh, at least one or two stops a day in different local towns or, and that helped to keep the weight of our gear low because we could buy any additional food we needed in town and not have to lug it for the entire trip, which was really helpful. Yeah, so I, I just, I bought a used old road bike. It was nothing fancy, but it worked. I, like I was able to get through the trip with no problems, no flats, I know. There were, I think three people got flat tires, no one in this group, but there were definitely bike problems that I felt like I had minimal bike problems with a, a pretty basic bike. Um, I actually used a cyclocross bike instead of a road bike, but it worked just fine because the frame wasn't anything too heavy and I had road tires on it. Um, overall, my gears definitely weren't as good as some road bikes were, which made climbing hills a little more difficult, but I definitely was able to take on the challenge. Um, and then my pedal did fall off on the last day, but it was just a matter of screwing it back on. So overall for me, nothing big with mechanical issues. Yeah, so I probably used a bike that was uh, unnecessarily nice for the trip, um, just because I do road bike a lot and I have a pretty nice road bike. But I'd say for anyone who's interested in going on the trip, um, really you do not need too nice of a bike. And maybe Tess can speak to a little bit of that. Um, you really can use uh, pretty much any bike you like. Yeah, um, like Ari said, I was on a like a commuter bike. It was like a hybrid commuter, so definitely not a road bike. And that had its limitations. Obviously, it didn't go into such a low gear. So like Alex said, it was a little harder on the hills. And the road, the um, tires were a little thicker, but that actually served me kind of well when we were um, like off of the beaten trail and doing some gravel roads. 
but you definitely don't need any fancy gear. I was able to get through on my bike, even though it was maybe a little bit harder. I really didn't have any technical problems with it, except for the chain falling off a few times, but I think that happened to a lot of people. Should we talk about some high or low points on the ride? All right, so I can start, and I'd say um, one high point on the ride was on day two, and I was coming back from the showers, and I ran into Miss Reeves, our wonderful secretary, who had surprised us with uh, pizza and seltzers. Um, so that was really nice to have Miss Reeves join us for a night, and we were able to enjoy the pizza around the fire. I think um, a high point for me was connecting with like the teachers, at like especially around the fire, because I think being outside of school and being on a trip with them kind of like takes away from some of like the more traditional like roles that you have with a teacher and dynamics. So it definitely was more of like a comfortable interactions where we were able to talk about stuff that we wouldn't normally talk about in school. So I definitely enjoyed that. Yeah, like Alex said, it was it was really nice getting to know all the teachers just on a more personal level. And I would say one other high for me, I think just every every night at camp was so much fun. We always had good campfires and we sometimes played games and then we also went swimming. It was just the whole thing was a blast. Yeah, like Elias, I really enjoyed being in camp. And I mean, I've always liked sleeping in tents and things like that, but it was just really fun after a day of hard work and a lot of biking to just relax and like be able to soak in that, that feeling of accomplishment. Coming into the trip, I had very little biking experience. I have some fitness from running track, which ended shortly before the bike trip, but I really, I've never been a biker. The, I went on a few rides before the trip, but they weren't too long. And the four rides we did on the bike trip were the four longest rides I've ever done. And I felt like I was able to do it. It was a challenge, but it was super rewarding and not too difficult. Yeah, so I do have a lot of biking experience coming into this, which um, did make the ride fun. But I'd like to note that because we were in a group with such varied skill sets, I think no matter how strong or weak of a biker you were, you'd always have someone else to ride with, um, which was a real strength of, I think, the um, bikepacking trip. Yeah, I really didn't have much biking experience going into it. I play an endurance sport, I'm on crew, so that definitely helped, but um, it wasn't like I had a lot of biking experience. I mean, I'd rode a bike before, but I did some some trips, or some rides, I should say, not trips before um, our trip, but really nothing longer than maybe 20 or 25 miles. So maybe, a, yeah, not much experience on my part. Yeah, so I would say the um, biggest mental challenges of the trip was probably um, our peer Desmond, who's unfortunately not here. He got caught changing a flat in the rain. And unfortunately, it was one of those flats where it was really hard to pry the tire off the rim. So he spent a solid hour in the rain while the rest of us were chilling out at the indoor rest spot. So poor Desmond. He um, had Mr. Jones with him. He had Mr. Jones, <laughs> but it speaks to... Desmond and Mr. Jones' resilience that both of them were in a cheery mood when they got to the rest stop and were able to enjoy the rest of the day. I think uh, the biggest challenge for me had to do with my uh, lack of biking and preparation before, just due to um, being sore and like being on the seat. I definitely wasn't used to that feeling at all. So that was definitely something I had to overcome, especially in like the last day by taking like a lot of ibuprofen and just reassuring myself. Yes, ibuprofen is a must for the bike trip. 
Um, so should we uh, wrap up with um, what advice would you give to teachers and student groups at other schools or maybe this school about starting their own ride? I think a big thing is just planning like a good concrete route. Um, and then I also think it's good to have a few like backup routes. It's important to be able to like accommodate for things like roads being worked on or stuff like that or roads that are inaccessible. So making sure that you have, are prepared for multiple elements. Yeah, I I love that I plan on doing it again and I recommend to anyone who has any interest in doing it, like go to one of the meetings next year and just learn more about it. And I think that'll help you make a decision on if you want to do it. All right, thank you. And that was the bike tour students of Northampton High School in Northampton, Massachusetts, Born to be Wild. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Bye.